at entertainmentguidemn.com. Oh, look at this. This looks fun. Since 1876, Watamingo Mutual. Forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Six, one, two, two, I don't, I don't hear four, anything. two, six, five, zero, seven is not available. Yeah. Oh, it's not 507. At it's the tone, please record your message. No, when you've finished recording, oh, you may hang up or us. press one. Yeah, we're trying to get her on the phone right now. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. Five. Is this. 2425-6507. Yep. Okay. okay. Um, sit down. Okay. <laughs> Talk. Hello. You got 30 seconds. Hi, Annika. It's Paula. Hi. Sorry about that. We're having some uh, board issues here, but I think we're ready oh. to go. Can I hook you up? Yep. I'll get you online. Thanks so much. Sorry about that. <laughs> Yes. Spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout okay. Minnesota and the Upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit ParadiseCenterForTheArts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372. Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination with your host, Paula Granquist, is brought to you by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts. And now, Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Good morning. This is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. And it has been another zany day, so we can chalk that up to... Woo, we made it made it here. So thank you folks for listening to the show that celebrates creating and stories. Let's get together and tune our imaginations. You know, I love reading, and when I start reading a book, I often first look for a suitable bookmark. I have a ceramic napkin holder where I've collected assorted bookmarks and cool rectangle-shaped papers and event postcards and even ticket stubs. And when I'm, especially when I'm reading a book for Arts Any Radio or for Book Club, I use multiple bookmarks for each book because I want to mark pages with significant paragraphs or notable quotes or memorable phrases. Sometimes magic happens when I randomly select a bookmark. I just love this. The one that I pulled out this week had a, a quote from author Jean R-H-Y-S, and I'm going to guess it's Reese, and her Wikipedia. I didn't know anything about this author. It says she was a CBE, which I learned is Commander of the Order of the British Empire, and she was a British novelist who was born and grew up in the Caribbean island of Dominica. And from the age of 16, she was mainly a resident in England, where she was sent for her education. She's best known for her novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, which I am not familiar with either. So I do not know if it's a good book or if we should recommend it. But I love going down this this rabbit hill. Um, The book was written as a 
sequel to, or prequel, excuse me, to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I thought that was fascinating. So again, the novel is Wide Saragasso Sea. I might be checking that one out. She was born in 1890 and lived all the way to 1979. And that book that she published was published in 1966 when she was 76 years old. I thought, wow, that's a super cool fact. Her life was uh, profoundly marked by a sense of exile, loss, alienation, and all of those themes were dominant in her novels and short stories. And despite the critical acclaim that she received, even at the end of her life in 1979, she still doubted the merits of her work. She had a fascinating life story, and it was wonderful to get lost in the stories about her experiences. I absolutely love falling into reading and discovering the stories of authors. The bookmark had been from the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis, and the quote from her reads, Reading makes immigrants of us all. It takes us away from home, but more important, it finds homes for us everywhere. I had never paired the act of reading with the word immigrant. I'm intrigued by the idea. I've always known that reading takes you into worlds and lives and situations that you can live by your imagination. Reading builds empathy, shows us pathways and consequences, helps us build language skills and life skills, allows us to explore these worlds, takes us places in time, shows us new perspectives. And reading enhances so much of our experience of living. I can't imagine a world without reading. With all my literary experiences, I'd never thought of reading as a transformation into a world away from home, away from what's comfortable and normal. I do love that her quote, Jean Reese, tells us there are homes for all all of us everywhere. That part I want to stick with. It's how we share the world and welcome all the people. Becoming immigrants is how we balance the world. And that's something that I can definitely embrace. So that's a little food for thought this morning, a little bit about my um, Art Matters. Today on Arts Any Radio, I am so excited to be able to welcome to Arts Any Radio, Annika Fajardo. We are going to discuss her memoir, Magical Realism for Nonbelievers, and the middle grade novel, What If a Fish? You can get lots of details and learn more about each of her books at Annika Fajardo, which is A-N-I-K-A-F-A-J. ARDO.com. She was born in Columbia and raised in Minnesota. She's the author about that experience, which we're going to be talking about today, Magical Realism for Nonbelievers, a memoir of finding fam- family from the University of Minnesota Press. It was awarded Best, non- Best Book Nonfiction of 2020 from City Pages and was a finalist for the 2020 Minnesota Book Award. Her debut middle grade novel, What If a Fish?, is out now and um, is is um, oh I've lost my page I printed some for some reason multiple copies of page one and two printed and that one was awarded the 2021 Minnesota Book Award that's very exciting it's what if a fish so if you don't know that you should check that out if you got some young folks on your list who might be interested that would be a great holiday gift her next book for young readers meet me halfway will be published in spring of 2022 she's a writer editor and teacher she lives with her family in the she as i love this about her uh, reference on her biography a very literary city of minneapolis i'm going to welcome annika fajardo to art zany radio welcome annika Thank you, Paula. What a thrill this is. This is like an early Christmas holiday gift for me to be able to have this conversation. I've wanted to do it for so long, so we finally got it coordinated. 
Yes, this is so exciting. <laughs> Folks, I, I, if you don't know, Annika, I'm so excited to be able to introduce you. I do know that you are a reader and you love books because you have a mastery, master's in library and information science. And I would love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your relationship with books and reading. When did you know that this was going to be your world? Well, I grew up with my um, mom and my maternal grandparents. And um, they both, they all read to me a lot when I was growing up. I have quite an echo. Is there a way for me to not have an echo? <laughs> See what I can do here. Um, let me uh, try. We're, we're uh, folks. We are some reason something. It's like a little uh, gremlin on the board today. So we're gonna try and see if we can fix that. Um, is that any better? I'll try. Yes, that is better. Thank you. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I grew up listening to people read aloud to me. Winnie the Pooh and James Thurber. Um, my mom read her grandmother's edition of Little Women to me when I was really young, which I still have. It's a beautiful, falling apart old copy. Um, and then I had a, a great aunt who owned a bookstore in White Bear Lake that still is there. Um, and uh, she gave me my first copies of Anne of Green Gables. And my mom also read those aloud to me. And between Anne Shirley and Jill March, I began kind of this fantasy of the writer who's like holed up in their attic, scribbling on pages. You know, it had like this really romantic view for me. And I started keeping a journal when I was in fourth grade and I still have it. I have all my journals since then. Um, and so I think right away I was, I wanted to be a writer right away. Um, the second I learned about that as being something you could do, but I didn't think that like regular people like me could be a writer. So I spent a lot of time being a reader. I love that story. You, how lucky you were to have, was it your great aunt you said who had a bookstore? Yes. Did you get to just go in and hang out in the bookstore? That seems like a dream childhood to me. <laughs> Well, and she was perfect. I mean, she was the best at picking out books for gifts because she just knew, you know, she just knew that a 12-year-old girl needed to have Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> yeah, she, that's such, I mean, what a lucky thing. And then to know that at that point. But I love how you mentioned that, that you had the uh, vision of, you know, the solitary writer just producing and sitting away. But that's not the way that life works. <laughs> No, it's not. It is. I think that's something we all all dream about. Um, and when you, you know, our, our conversation about magical realism for non-believers, I want to start that because um, you mentioned several times in the book, the, the great book, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which I absolutely love that book. And it's such an amazing book. It's probably one of the few books on my bookshelf that I've read at least three times. And it's, it's probably one of the very few that I've read that many times. And I, I wish I could describe to somebody what it's like to read that book, because it's the only thing I can come up with is it's, it's like entering a dream. The story really just like grabs hold of your soul. And if you allow it to, you know, wash over you, it pulls you in with that language, the setting, the world. So tell me, because I, I'm, I certainly magical realism in the title of your book comes from uh, the tradition that Gabriel Garcia Marquez displays in that book. But what was your experience reading that book for the first 
one or two times or more. Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned Little Women and Anne of Green Gables and these sort of traditional um, Western uh, European culture books that I grew up on. And then when I was in high school, I... I discovered first, like, Water for Chocolate from by Laura Esquivel, and then um, I discovered Isabel Allende and uh, read Of Love and Shadows, which just blew me away as I sort of kind of started to realize, like, there were, there were people writing that were from other places, from South America, from Mexico, um, and telling different kinds of stories. And when I first read 100 Years of Solitude, I'd kind of been primed with those stories, which are sort of more um, love stories, kind of the thing that a high school girl might be interested in. And so I was really interested in kind of discovering this other part of myself that I didn't know much about, which is my, um, I was born in Colombia and my father's Colombian, and I did not grow up with him. So I entered into 100 Years of Solitude sort of willing it to like open up some doors for me in terms of my own identity and just was swept away by that, by the story and the magicalness of it and the way that you're just embedded in that world. And if you stop and think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But you just keep going into it. Um, and that for me also, Paula, I've, that's one of the books that I read over and over again. And you have to be ready, right? It's a long book and it's a challenging book in so you have to be ready to really dive into it and let it kind of let yourself be inhabited in that book. Yeah, and we should mention he is a Colombian author, which I guess I knew he was from um, that part of the world, but I hadn't made the connection. And when when I read your book, I thought, oh, this is starting to make sense why why it would be a part of Annika's book. And when somebody asks you what is magical realism, I I always struggle to figure out how to define that. So what do you say to people? Yeah, magical realism is a literary device that's um, really popularized by Latin American writers um, in the um, started sort of in the twenties and then moved in, you know, as um, Isabel Allende and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and um, uh, other writers really sort of used it as a technique. Um, it is the sensation where the writer is writing about magical things, but in the context of the book, of the story, they are presented as if they were real. So it's not the same as magic like Harry Potter magic. It's magic that to the inhabitants of the book generally don't see it as being all that spectacular. They kind of see it as being part of life. And originally, it was used in um, it was used in literature in order to kind of subvert some political views. It was used as sort of anti-colonialism, so it has a lot of political roots to it. Um, now it's more seen as sort of this like cultural thing. Um, and when you go to South America, when you go to Colombia, there are there are the real things that happen all around you, and it's sort of this idea like life just is surreal and um, magical. Uh, and so it's sort of, the way that Gabriel Garcia Marquez described it was that the magical things that he talks about, his grandmother told him these stories when he was growing up, and she told them as if they had really happened, these very magical things. And he, listening to them as a young boy, just assumed that they really had. And so he sees it as more of 
reporting the truth about what happened, um, not making up magical stories. So it's, it rides a really interesting line between what we normally think of as magic, like with wands and spells, mm-hmm. and more of a um, almost spiritual sort of experience. I'm glad you, you shared that with us because I hadn't realized the political history behind it. I, I've always associated it with sort of fantastical stories that become, you know, embedded in the, the culture and world so that, you know, there's, again, as you said, there's that line between what's real, what's not real. And so to employ that technique in a memoir is really fascinating to, um, you know, begin to explore that idea of, you know, what do I know? What do I don't know? What don't I know? Um, how do I, um, begin to remember it if I'm, um, you know, if I, if, do I remember or do, did I forget? You know, those, those kind of lines that balance, um, those pieces. And folks, if you aren't familiar with this book, it, it is, Absolutely glorious. I love this book. It's Magical Realism for Nonbelievers. If you're just tuning in, this is Art Zany Radio. I'm talking with Annika Fajardo. And I want you to get this book because I was so immediately captivated by the story and by the, the writing. And there's just so, so many places we can go talking about this. Um, so I'm very excited to, to be able to share this. In, early on in the book you write, I wondered how different knowing and remembering were. I met countless people whose names I immediately forgot. I remembered stories that never happened. I knew nothing about ones that had. And I thought that was a really um, good good introduction to people about you know how, what you were exploring within this book. And so tell me about um, how you began drafting selections for this memoir, how you were uh, playing with that idea of remembering and forgetting and knowing and and the stories, because I, I I would think that that um, you know when you're trying to write about something as essential to your life as as you know reconnecting with your father, there's a, a lot of things swimming swimming around in your head. Yeah, well, and I have to say, of course, that um, Paula was my very first writing teacher. Oh, thank you for <laughs> um, saying I'd that. Always wanted to be a. I'd always wanted to be a writer, and but I'd never taken any classes of any kind. I didn't. I didn't take any classes in college, um, and so my very first class was with Paula, and um, sort of this. I you taught a lot about the idea of imagination and sort of diving into a story, whatever it was. Um, and so I started writing, wanting to be a fiction writer. Really, I hadn't read any memoir, um, and so I, I I started with stories, made up stories. And that was fine. And then uh, I wrote a story about something that happened in my own life. And readers seemed to connect with that more than they had connected with anything else I had made up. Um, And so I started writing some memories that I had of my childhood and, uh, you know, various things. And, And then I was taking a class, another class, where I was introduced to sort of this idea that you could combine these two things together, um, that you could t- write about things that had happened, but you didn't have to be completely tied down to just the facts, that you could kind of play around a little bit um, and introduce imagination into telling your own story. And I think that piece really, that idea really allowed me, kind of freed me up to write about Columbia and some of the things that happened in a way that I couldn't when I was just writing, here's the things that happened. Um, 
for example, my my father's house in Colombia. So I went down to Colombia when I was 20, 21 and met him for the first time after I was a baby. And his house has an open courtyard in the middle of it. And birds would fly into the courtyard and, you know, eat on eat the seeds that they would put out for him for them. And then sometimes they would get caught inside the house. They would just fly right into the house. And these birds in my memory became really kind of metaphorical in terms of kind of getting lost and, and getting found and getting trapped and then figuring out how to leave and playing with these images that I had memories of but couldn't, you know, couldn't quite remember what had happened, I was able to kind of um, explore the things that melt, that kind of is in between your memory and your imagination. Mm. I love that line. And I think birds, you know, embody that kind of in 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 an amazing way. They're very captivating. And I would imagine just the landscape of being Columbia and, you know, that courtyard. I mean, don't we all dream of having a courtyard? And and a place to you know uh, bring nature into the into our our own world and and transverse that uh, line of you know outside inside. I think that's that's a really wonderful place to start. Now, when you because I, I I really think that's what makes your book so readable is because it does use some of those um, storytelling techniques, but yet you know it's based on your true stories, and so you've you've you know, done that in such a brilliant way. Um, tell me about going back to those memories and trying to d- rediscover the stories. You know, how did you, because um, I think that's one thing a lot of people think is, you know, I'll never remember everything or I'll never get it right or I'll never, um, how do I structure it? How, how do I, you know, piece together something that happened years ago? So what was your process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this book was nine years from these first stories till it got published so it was a long process and I started with writing separate essays they were just sort of memories things that had happened that were stories and had some meaning and so it started out as as this collection of essays that um, were all about my life but were not really connected in a narrative way Um, and then I uh, wrote it, then I rewrote the whole thing as a narr- narrative, so starting at the beginning and going through my whole life till I got to that point, and it, that wasn't quite working either, and so the final product is a melding of both of those versions of this book that I had written, um, and when I started putting it together in terms of sort of having some chronological cohesion, I'm lucky, like I mentioned, I have kept a journal since I was in fourth grade. Mm. So I definitely had some some pieces to, to use. And then I kept a very detailed journal, travel journal, when I first went there at age 20. And that was hugely helpful. In addition to the photographs that I took on that trip that I still have, um, one of the things that the, the journal itself from that trip was it had a narrative arc in and of itself. When I first arrived, I referred to my father in the journal by his first name, Renzo. And then about halfway through the trip in my journal, I started referring to him as my dad, my father. And then towards the end, I referred to him as my dad. So he, he went through this transformation that I didn't realize until, you know, many years later when I was going through this journal and realized that there was this narrative arc happening even while I was there. Uh, so keeping records of, of things that happen to you, obviously, is hugely helpful. Um, 
and then we, my family, I, we took my daughter back to Columbia when she was six, and I took kept a journal that time. It was less detailed. Of course, I was I was um, dealing with a six year old at the time, <laughs> but I did keep I kept at least some basic notes about what we did. So I did have some of those things to play off of. And I actually did combine two trips two years in a row into the narrative and presented them as one trip. I, I actually don't remember in some places which happened which year. So essentially, I was able to kind of compress those two trips also into one. So I did use a little bit of storytelling technique in order to, to make it a story that someone would be interested in reading. Yeah, I mean, it reads seamlessly. And you do, you go into this place. The first scene we see is is you uh, greeting your father at the airport with his, uh, I, I don't was she wife or, or a partner? I can't remember. Were they, wife. they were married. Okay, they were married. And um, I think what's what's interesting is is during the, that first time when you're meeting with him, just even communication, you were kind of wondering, do I, you know, speak with in Spanish or do I speak in um, English? You both of you were kind of on on that that wall, right? <laughs> How are we going to fill this gap together? And um, it's a very playful part of of the entire book. I think is is those two different worlds and you know, can, what do you inhabit and where do you, you know, where do you go with that? So how did language complicate your experience and relationship with trying to, you know, find your family? I grew up speaking English with my American mom. Um, I was interested right away, um, very young in learning Spanish because I knew, obviously I knew I had been born in Colombia and I my mom got divorced when I was two and brought me back to Minnesota. And so I had a two-year-old grasp of Spanish when I first came to the United States. Mm, um, so awesome. my first, technically, my first language was Spanish. And I suppose uh, those... So I, <laughs> just the two-year-old Spanish, though. But yet you, um, you were probably imbued with all that sound and the, the rhythms and the patterns and the... Um, I, I think that it's the musicality of it. So that's probably a really good training for, um, you know, thinking about writing. I, th- I hadn't I hadn't thought about that before. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I you know my grandmother used to say, well, you're 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 learning Spanish easier because you probably have that in your brain from from being a child. Um, so I I definitely felt like learning Spanish was part of claiming my identity. Um, I was the only Colombian that I knew and growing up I was I grew up in um, a suburb of Minneapolis and in the 80s and there was almost no people from South America or Mexico where I where I lived. Um, and so learning Spanish was really important to me and I majored in Spanish in college and then I spent a semester in Spain in college and that's that that language acquisition is what gave me the courage, I think, to go to Colombia at age 20 when my dad invited me. Um, and if I hadn't known the language, I think I think I would have been a lot more hesitant to actually go. But I felt pretty pretty fluent at the time. Um, of course, I had learned Spain Spanish, mm-hmm. so there, I had a lot of holes in my vocabulary and a lot of things I didn't say right um, that people made fun of me for when I got there. <laughs> um, but my and my dad speaks fluent English, he um, went to went to high school and college in upstate New York, and then um, spent a lot of time in Minnesota when my parents were married, uh, and continued, you know, had kept up his English. So he spoke English pretty fluently. He spoke English, he had learned it in the 60s, so he spoke a little bit kind of quaint English. 
Um, <laughs> so we we would kind of go back and forth between English and Spanish. His wife doesn't speak any English at all, so I was really forced to use all the Spanish I could and learn a lot of Spanish that way. Um, and so telling the story, I felt like there was some places that maybe I would never really understand about what happened. Um, but it also freed me up, I think, to write. A lot of people, when they write memoir, they are worried about what their families will think. Mm-hmm. And I had this sense, well, I have a lot of family that will never be able to read this because I'm writing it in English. And that gave me a freedom to say things that maybe I wouldn't have said if I had been spending too much time thinking about what people would think or say. Obviously, now that the book is published, my family have read it or my dad has, you know, kind of relayed the information in it and everyone is perfectly happy with it. So it's, it all worked out fine. But I think for writers writing their own stories, they can feel kind of held back by that idea of like, what is my family going to think if I tell these stories? And it's really great if you can write without thinking about that. Absolutely. That, I- that language piece really helped me just decide that I wasn't going to worry about that. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's a really good point for people. You know, your first drafts are just yours, and those are, are, you know, places you don't have to share. And so folks should, should think about that and really dive into it because I think you don't get to figure out the structure or the, you know, the, the way that you want to convey the story until you actually get it all down. And so I think that's a really good, good piece of advice. The Spanish vocabulary in here is really fun. I, I loved um, reading that. You've done a, a brilliant job because it's difficult to manage that when you're trying to use words in another language and, and have the audience who maybe doesn't know any of them to understand. And I mean, you use great vocabulary about the food and the verbs and the um, objects in the in the world that you were at. I love the bakery items. That was probably some of my favorite things and the fruits that you <laughs> experienced that I still, you know, I was like, wow, I've never heard. I didn't know that was was a, a fruit. So, um, and and what I also loved was that that knowledge of both languages allowed you to sort of explore and make connections that that um, kind of expanded your your world and and expanded my understanding of some Spanish words. And what and, and it also shows the beauty of the, the Spanish language. I, I just I think it's such a, a glorious language. For example, you use you taught us that conocer means both to meet and to get to know, which is such an appropriate verb to explore for your book. Um, and you know, the, another example you had was lo siento, which means I'm sorry, but it also translates directly into I feel it. And so I love that duplicity in that way that maybe Spanish has a little bit of a, I, I don't know, a more heartfelt way of, of looking at words or it's more complexity. Tell, tell me, did you learn by, you know, or how did you come to know or, or put these, these gems inside of this book? They're just absolutely a beautiful, beautiful piece of the book. Oh, thank you. Um, I guess. Spanish does have a different way of communicating, and it, it, it takes a lot of words to say what we say in English a little bit more simply. Um, so if you, when you translate, you end up having a lot, you're saying a lot, and there's, um, I mean, there's just a number of words that you're saying in order to say what we say in English. Uh, and so I think you, I, I think there's sort of this, sense of almost like a slowing down that you really have to kind of think about it and 
and I think that's true just speaking another language. I am fluent enough to, you know, be able to converse with my non-English speaking stepmother, but, you know, I don't, I couldn't conduct like a class in Spanish. <laughs> um, so I have to think about it. And, and I think that slowing down and really thinking about language is really helpful in order to make connections and see words individually and, you know, their kind of expanse that each word can be. Um, and so maybe that's where those things came from. I, you know, studying Spanish and really thinking about language and meaning and how do we, how do we convey what we're thinking and what we're feeling? Because those, you know, these really strong emotions can be really hard to translate into any spoken language, <laughs> no matter what language. Um, and to take all of that kind of physicality of memory and your um, kind of visceral senses, like how do you portray that in so that someone else can understand what you're going through? So I almost feel I feel lucky to be able to use another language. It's almost like there's not enough words in English, right, to, <laughs> to portray some of these emotions and experiences. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree, and I think that that slowing down that's a really uh, I think an essential piece of if you're if you're thinking about doing any sort of memoir. Um, that that's how you bring forth some of those sensory details and those emotions. And my favorite in the book was Dar Luz. I'm, I'm probably not saying that correctly. Dar Luz. I always get that wrong. <laughs> um, to give, yes. give birth. It, it doesn't roll off the tongue very well. Um, it means to give birth, but also if you translate directly to give light. And I thought what a, that one was such a great metaphor for, um, your book. And, you know, I, I hesitate to try and figure out how to tell your story about the book without revealing some of the wonderful, I guess you could call them magical moments that happen and the discoveries that you have, because it's, I, I, you know, pretty, um, amazing for the reader to, to learn with you as you go through and, and, you know, you start with your father, but it opens doors that you never imagined. <laughs> Yeah, and so I wonder how um, giving birth to this book, um, you know, felt after you, you know, you had been out for a, a little while, and um, you know, reflecting back on that process of you know giving birth to the book. It's it's pretty miraculous feeling. Um, I, I, yeah, it's been out for three years, and it just came out in paperback, so it it feels like something that has happened, you know, like I, most of the, most of the time I think, yes, I have this book, but every once in a while I think about as it was, it was nine years. It was a lot of rejection, a lot of um, rewriting, a lot of feeling like I should give up and not do this anymore. Um, and, and actually it was through that sort of emotional process of giving up and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. That actually when something new started happening and things started moving. So I, I believe in the magic, um, of, of sort of this world that we live in, that, that there's magical things that happen to us all the time, and we can choose to see them as magic or not. Um, and so writing the book really felt like um, I had a story to tell that I needed to tell, and it has had a lot of repercussions that have been really amazing. One, The most important having been some reunions with my family, and my father and his wife just came to the U.S. Uh, in October. Oh, exciting. And my father had been to, the, to Minnesota in 45 years, and it was a really magical experience. My parents 
were in the same room with me for the first time since I was a baby and first time in my memory. And um, they were able to kind of have some closure on their divorce that was pretty not very amicable. Um, And my mom met my stepmom and everybody got along. Uh, (laughs) And those were things that just wouldn't have happened if I hadn't written this book. And so it's been it's enriched my life and enriched the life of my daughter too. And so it's amazing kind of to see that come full circle and have real life implications on something that is a piece of art, right? So, I mean, this art zany, so art, right? Art matters. Right? It, it, it can change people's lives. And both my parents told me that they were really grateful that, that my story was able to, you know, cause these events that had them have kind of a, a reunion of sorts that allowed my my me to have my parents together it's amazing that would be I, I didn't when you when you said to have both my parents in the same room I mean what a moment right just just even that that um presence of everybody together is got to be an incredible feeling and to, to know that because you you know wrote about this family world and and the way that you you know reconnected to your world in Colombia and now they came here that's that's a beautiful circle <laughs> yeah is, is there I, I forgot to ask you if you had a copy of the book um, nearby if there might be a you know a selection you you are feeling like would be a good one to share with our listeners today or a, or a story from the book if you don't have the book um, that you know we can give people a sense of of the book and the writing I want people to hear it uh, is that a possibility yeah yeah um I do have a book, and I like I, you were you were talking about your bookmarks. This my copy is filled with bookmarks. Um. <laughs> my books always <laughs> are. It's it's kind of fun, and and then what I get to do is so I put the bookmark in, but then I have to remember what was it I was remembering about this page. So then I get to reread two whole pages, and you know get back in it and figure out what to grab. So I think it's um, it's kind of fun. I love I love doing it that exactly. way because you get to re-experience it in a new way. And, and for me, it helps me to sort of see the arc of the story or, you know, why did that sentence jump out to me? Um, and, and you have such beautiful language in here and the way that you traverse time and, um, you know, tell reveal the details. I'm, it's just a powerful book, but it's also um, reads like a, you know, a great story, right? I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to, I wanted to turn the page and find out what happened. So it's, it's a gem of a book and I'm so excited for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I will just read a couple paragraphs from chapter two. Um, so I've, it's, this was actually originally a standalone essay and it fit in well towards the beginning of the book. Um, so it's a little bit in a different style than, than the first chapter. Uh, which is more narrative, um, and this is a little bit more of a reflection. So this is chapter two. I was born in Colombia. This is true. I was born in a Spanish-style whitewashed hospital that was later leveled by an earthquake and rebuilt in its likeness. I was born in a small city in the southwestern Colombian mountains, and my father congratulated himself with Dracos while my mother swore and labored, screamed and pushed. I began my life in Spanish. This is true. Zapato and leche were my first words. I crawled on wooden floorboards and encountered tropical insects as big as soup bowls. I teethed on mango seeds, masticating the sweet yellow flesh until my tiny pearls appeared in pink gums. This is true. 
And if my mother had never taken me back to the United States, if my parents had never parted, never fought over me, never fell out of love, if I had grown up in that rented house in Colombia, I would have heard the peals of the iron bells of the iglesia. When my amigas went to mass with their abuelas, my hippie parents, a mix of Mexican progressive, of American progressive values and Colombian pride, would have kept me at home, my mother reading aloud chapters from a dog-eared copy of Winnie the Pooh. If we had lived not in a Minneapolis suburb, but in a town in South America, I would have watched my mother at her loom, slapping the treadle against the warp with a comforting thud and singing the folk songs of Joni Mitchell. She would have played me scratchy records of Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we would have sung along in two-part harmony. These recordings I remember so well from my childhood would have been, had we stayed in Colombia, the only time I would have heard English spoken by anyone other than my parents. That's a really good introduction to where the story begins. And I bet readers are not going to be able to guess where the story might go and, and unfold because there are so many um, pieces that, that become uh, you know, through that process of reconnecting with your father in Colombia that, that open and uh, just, it's a very, very wonderful story. And I wondered, I kept having this image of, of a puzzle as I was reading this book. And I wonder if this, because the one thing you wanted to do when you first went to Colombia was to sort of find your belonging to or connection to that, that place, that culture. And I wonder if you thought that um, you found a piece of that puzzle, or if maybe that trip or that, you know, reconnection gave you a bigger picture of, you know, your family or your place in the world. Where do you think you are in building that puzzle? Yes, a puzzle is such a great um, metaphor for that. You landed on that perfectly, but that, that really felt, that really was what it felt like actually to put the book together. I literally had two manuscripts that I was literally cutting apart and taping back together. So <laughs> it, it was a puzzle. <laughs> um, like physically, it was a puzzle. And then uh, definitely going to Colombia was something I, that felt like I was filling in. Um, a part of myself. I, I often thought about it like almost like a coloring book, like there was spaces that hadn't ever been colored in and then going there helped me to color them in. Um, I've heard from readers who are international adoptees that have read this book and felt really, really connected to it. And I had not imagined that. So people who, someone who's, who's adopted from Korea, for example, felt seen in this book. And I had never imagined that that would be a reader that would connect with this story. But I think that we all have this sort of um, deep need to know where we came from. And when we don't see that in our everyday lives, um, I think that that's sort of this hole that's there that might not have a huge impact on our daily lives, but it's sort of this niggling thought in the back of our heads at all times. Who am I? Where did I come from? And going to Colombia was a way for me to see this other side of myself because I felt extremely Minnesotan and extremely <laughs> American. Um, but at the same time, I knew that I was different than other people. Not, you know, there, I grew up at a time where there wasn't a lot of divorce, not, not as many divorces. Mm -hmm. um, I knew very few people who didn't know one of their parents at all. You know, most people who were divorced went back and forth between their mom and their dad. Um, I didn't have any siblings, so I was this sort of 
lone person that was the only one like me. <laughs> um, so I think we all want to find our community and want to find um, that connection to things that we don't we don't really know. You know, what where did I get this trait from, or where did I get this personality um, quirk from? We want, we just need to know that. I th- yeah, I think that I, I hadn't thought about that either about other people who are connecting with it. But I, you know, I feel like uh, there's a lot of us have those stories of, of our families that we want to uh, understand and and you know how how do we belong in this world and how do we like you said make sense of what we witness and who we are, where do those come from? And so there, there's a lot of ways. It's it's a universal story in some ways too. Um, it, one one thing I wanted to, to talk about too was your mom often um, used the phrase love the one you're with which I'm pretty sure is from a song but I forgot to look up where that came from or maybe the yeah. phrase came first I don't know which came first um, and so it, it um, I, I think that's a really uh, 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 that could have also been a title perhaps for the, for the book too uh, because you're you know you were um brought back and connected to that Colombian world, but you uh, moved away from Minnesota and eventually came back to Minnesota as well. So there's um, your family changed through through the time. So how did that uh, advice play into your story? Um, Well, you know, I think we, we have to take advantage of who we have in our lives when we have them. Um, My, uh, when I was re- working on my middle grade novel, actually, my grandmother passed away, and that, you know, anytime you lose somebody, I think that really makes you think about how we have to just, you know, embrace the time that we have with people and sort of meet our family and our, you know, mostly family, um, <laughs> where they are when they are, you know, things maybe you don't get along with them or you think you wish were different or things in your relationship that you wish were different. And I think embracing what, where you are at that moment is the best that we can do because we can't, we can't control other people's lives. We can't control choices that were made in the past. We can't control, you know, what things that happened to us. We can only control how we think about them now. And so I think that that was also really an important realization I had both writing the book and kind of processing a lot of things that happened um, is to really just ex- do a lot of acceptance. Um, that song, Love the One You're With, um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a, you know, there was a, there's a lot of 70s sort of hippie <laughs> lifestyle um, in this book that started a lot of things. And so I definitely kind of the baby boomer generation have also really I, um, identified with this book. I've heard a lot of stories about people's various um, adventures when they were in, when they were young people in the 70s. So that's been really fun also to hear from those. Um, Minnesotans have had exciting lives, I will tell you. <laughs> um, it's been fun to hear. I would imagine um, it sparks a lot of conversations. There's a lot to, you know, to does. look at here. <laughs> Yeah, I think it sparks a lot of memories too. So that that's been really fun to hear about too. 
Well, folks, if you're tuning in, this is Paula Granquist. I'm uh, here with Annika Fajardo on Art Zany Radio. We're talking about her memoir, Magical Realism for Nonbelievers. And we should it's a good time to transition now and talk a little bit about the middle grade novel that you wrote called What If a Fish? And this is, this is really exciting because you went back to that um, fictional storytelling. And I have to say, it's probably one of the most beautiful um, young reader books I've seen. The artwork on the cover is just... Um, glorious. And it's really fascinating um, how how you've taken your experience and then turned it into another version of a story. But this one is about uh, a, a boy named um, Eddie, who also is a part Colombian. So tell me how, how he came into your world. I first wrote a story about Eddie, a uh, short story that was published in an anthology from the University of Minnesota Press um, called Sky Blue Water. And I wrote this story about a little boy named Eddie who had a much older brother whose name also was Eddie. So they two brothers, 10 years apart, and they both have the same name. And I wrote it because um, I had I lived by Lake Harriet in Minneapolis, and I watched a guy catch a fish that had to have been three feet long. I mean, I don't oh. know much about fishing, but it was <laughs> a monster. And then the fish bit this guy, and the guy was bleeding, and he had, like, this little rag, and it was turning red with the blood. He had gotten bit by this fish. And I know nothing about fishing. I had no idea that, first of all, fish that big lived in Minneapolis Lake, and second, (laughs) that they had teeth and that they would bite people. And I couldn't get this image out of my head. And somehow that, that image and this boy with a brother with the same name as him those two things just like wouldn't leave me and I kept thinking about them and um, I actually started writing um, Eddie's story when I couldn't get my memoir published Um, I had gone through many revisions I'd gotten grants I'd gotten really close to getting something and I, I finally gave up on it and put it in a drawer and decided I would just see what happens with this story of what's about Eddie and um and that was actually the book that got me my agent. Um, so that kind of put things in motion for me. So, you know, I don't know where it came from exactly, but I kind of took the same, what I call the emotional core of my memoir and put it into Eddie's story. And so I felt like I needed to tell this story about a kid, a, a half Colombian, half Minnesotan, trying to figure out where they belong in the world. And I realized I didn't have to necessarily tell my own story. I could tell the story um, with different characters and I could put this other story on top of it. And and it is quite a great tale. And um, it, congratulations on winning the Minnesota Book Award for, for this. And uh, it is... You know, I think I think there's probably you know, you mentioned that the the memoir sparked a lot of connections for people um, who were maybe adopted or had international family, but I would there's lots of kids that have this story that that's you know so to see themselves in a book I would is, has that been part of the reaction you've received from young readers? Yes, yes, and you know I think one of the things that young readers enjoy is that. There's a lot that happens in this book in addition to it being sort of an exploration of identity and where did I come from. And, and it's a story about grief also. Um, and But there's adventure too. So mm-hmm. little Eddie ends up going to Columbia and um, has some adventures in, with the ocean and um, and sort of the, the culture of Columbia too. And so I think kids are drawn to this idea too of, 
um, you know, kind of magical things happen. Magical things happen at E2 when he goes to Columbia. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really, really beautiful book. And it's exciting to um, note that your next book, Meet Me Halfway, is going to be published this upcoming spring. So is that another young reader? It's another young reader book. This one time it's about um, half-sisters and it is inspired by the pear trap and the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler. So if you know either of those stories. Oh, absolutely. Both, both uh, great things that I really loved as a kid. And so I wanted to kind of play with that idea of um, sibling story and uh, road trip adventure and running away and identity. So I'm really excited. It's been really fun to have girl characters. <laughs> I grew up a girl. It's a little easier to write a book. <laughs> right. And and your daughter must, is your daughter getting close to reading these, these books or, uh, I, I, yeah, she must be. Well, she's surpassed this. She's 15 now. Oh, wow. Okay. Time just goes zip. <laughs> yes. Um, but and she was the inspiration for many of Eddie's adventures in What If a Fish, um, and she helped with um, some of the plot points in Meet Me Halfway also. And she's been really a great cheerleader for my books, and she's pretty proud that she appears in, in the memoir especially. Um, and What If a Fish is dedicated to her. So I was just going to mention that. that. <laughs> and your husband, the, the, um, the memoir is dedicated to him. So. Yes. Yes. It'd be interesting to see who you next (laughs) dedicate the next one to. (laughs) Well, this has been so much fun. I am just, I I knew, you know, your writing is so um, exquisite and you're so talented. And I'm so excited that you've done both memoir and now uh, fiction. It's just something that uh, I can't wait to follow everything that you write. It's just extraordinary. Thank you so much, Paul, and thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to talk to you and reconnect with you. Yes, I know. This is uh, something I hope we get to do again maybe this spring with that other book. And I guess I'll I'll ask one last question. We have a couple more minutes here about, you know, I, I... know that stories have always been like you mentioned when you first started reading that that you you just you know dove in and you wanted to keep reading more stories how do you encourage other people to share their stories because there might be some people listening who are kind of thinking gosh i maybe that's something i could do what do you say or what advice would you give to young writers or um just storytellers well the first advice is always to read and read and read and read mm-hmm. so any any, if you want to write a memoir, start reading memoirs. And if you want to write um, young people's uh, novels, read as much as you can and read current things that are coming out now to see where, you know, I loved Anne of Green Gables, but they don't publish books like that anymore. Those are not the stories that children are drawn to now. Right. And so it's also really important to read really current stuff and just read as much as you can. Um, I working on both of these books, I actually just really dissected a lot of books, literally went through them with post-it notes and pencil and figured out, you know, how did, how did the author put these books together? Where does the action start? You know, what, why is there dialogue here? Really examining really great books. It's, it's both really fun and also helps your writing immensely. And for people who want to write memoir, I say, get, just get started. You have so many stories to tell and um, 
we all have such rich lives and a lot of them are unexamined. And I think the more we can tell our own stories, the more we can help to nurture empathy among um, in our community and figure out, you know, how are we more alike than we're different, right? Because one person's story might seem really specific to only them and it can spark memories or spark empathy in other people when they hear, you know, a story about um, growing up on a farm would be completely out of my experience, right? And so I love hearing those kinds of stories or a story about somebody who's immigrated from Africa. That would be completely out of my experience, and I would love to hear those stories. So we need to hear other people's stories, and so diving into your own writing is so important for both you as the writer to see, you know, your life come come to life on the page and also for other people to be able to, to read your stories. That is a great way to end. Annika Fajardo, it's been just a, a joy to, to be with you, and I thank you for um, bringing these books out. I hope people will, will check out your work and check out your website. It is AnnikaFajardo.com. I hope we get to connect again soon. Thanks so much, Paula. You're welcome. Folks, this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I hope that you will always remember to add some Art Zany to your life. And of course, in the meantime, till next time, enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany Radio for the Imagination with your host, Paula Granquist. Art Zany is brought to you each week by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault. Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877.